Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guests today are Karina Montag and Claire Whitmer of Stronghold, an organization that stewards sustainable shifts in systems and cultures towards equity and liberation. Karina Montag has worked at the intersection of mental health and social justice for nearly 20 years in multi-stressed communities, with an emphasis the past 10 on the impact of harm, accountability, and restorative practices in carceral settings. Karina, a black woman, is founding member of and serves on the leadership team for the Transformative Prison Workgroup, a statewide coalition of individuals and organizations that believe in the transformative and healing power of in-prison programs to break isolation, share ideas, and build political power. Claire Whitmer is a racial justice trainer and facilitator, and as a white cis woman, Claire has been learning and working in the field of racial justice for over a decade. Claire lives her commitment to collective liberation by supporting white-led organizations and communities to explore their privilege, power, and unexamined racism. Her facilitation emphasizes the personal and collective work of cultivating anti-racist consciousness and leveraging unearned white privilege in service of greater dignity and safety for people of color. Um, my name is Karina, and I do a couple of things. So I am a co-founder and co-director of Stronghold, and I also am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I have a small, small-ish private practice here in Berkeley. And I will say that what led me to do these things is a, a bit of a broader answer, and I'm wondering, Claire, whether you want to like, give your blurb, and then we can dig in a little deeper. Um, yeah, happy to. I'm Claire, and I am also the co-director and co-founder of Stronghold. And I would say the, like, right at the surface, what has brought me and to some extent us to do this work is uh, many years of doing prison-based work, first as volunteers who were trained in restorative justice, and then began going into the prison system, primarily San Quentin, and facilitating um, multi-year restorative justice programs with incarcerated men and women. Through our time working inside of the prisons and really immersing in restorative practices, there was a, a natural um, synchronicity between what we were experiencing as the healing potential of restorative practices and how those could be applied to the healing work of moving towards racial justice, that we really understand racial justice as a process of healing legacies of harm, legacies of white supremacy. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's good to get that kind of foundation. So let's let's talk about stronghold in general. Like on on a big dreams level, talk to me about what you hope to do in the world, and then also kind of on a practical level, almost a day to day. What kind of work do you find yourself doing currently? I also want to kick it back to Karina to give her broader, deeper <laughs> why or why she does this work. I think that they're they're all intricately connected, um, and along with my big my big dream. Um, I would say that maybe starting there, that my big, my big dream is uh, one of liberation. And that is for, for, for folks of color, for Black folks, for Indigenous folks in particular, and for everyone in general. For me, that means that we like, are free, that we're not in prisons, that we're not being detained in ICE, that we're 
on our land, that we are in right relationship, that we are healthy, that we can love and be loved. And so part of my, my work, um, what drew me to doing this work and restorative practices in the prisons was just sort of trying to sink into how do I get from where I was then to what I want to see for, for us in the world. And the first time that I sat in circle in the prison was the first time that I felt this, this is one of the ways of being really in deep relationship, deep connection with one another in the most um, painful, often shameful time in one's life and being able to share that and hold that as a collective and still experience belonging. And I would say that in my private practice, that it's similar, I feel like as folks of color that we've often been um, excluded from traditional therapeutic therapy practice. And this is work that we have been doing in our own ways outside of the like norm of mental health for a long time, that we've been in community, we've been in relationship, we've been in conversation with one another about how, how do we be well together. And so those are, I think those are kind of the two, two paths that then landed, landed me here for Stronghold and for this work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So what percentage of the work that you guys do with Stronghold um, entails like facilitating with organizations to uh, facilitate gender and racial justice? And what percentage is on the, the transformative justice um, and restorative justice level? So we work sort of with two, we have two wings, two primary wings at Stronghold. And one is yeah, that work of um, partnering with organizations who often come to us because because all of our organizations live inside of a culture of white supremacy and so often are unintentionally replicating the behaviors, patterns, ruptures of white supremacy. And white supremacy doesn't nurture healthy relationships or dignity for people. And so folks often come to us because that has become glaringly evident inside of their organizational culture or because folks of color have been leaving the organization chronically complaining that they don't feel seen or dignified inside of the culture um, or that there's been any other form of rupture. And we work to steward organizations through processes of healing, applying restorative practices, and often also training the folks inside of those organizations to be stewards of restorative justice themselves. I think Karina and I really hold that if it's if the work that we're doing is working, we at some point don't need to be involved in it. And then the other wing of our work is that we run a public training program that's open to anybody. And that's a scaffolded program. So it has multiple stages and we sort of drill deeper, deeper, deeper down as we go through those stages. And there's a similar intention to really equip people with the skills, practices, embodied knowing Mm -hmm. to be able to hold, really hold a lot of discord, which is a lot of what we're doing. 
and feel deeply rooted in restorative practice. And that work is also really about asking people to explore their own personal histories of harm, of punitive justice, of violence, of white supremacy, knowing that we can only take this work as far as we ourselves have gone personally. Well, talk to me about some of the challenges that are inherent in doing the work of restorative justice. What are some of the blocks that people run into? And maybe what are some of your techniques for for dealing with some of these blocks? What are ways that you can make the information that you're kind of, you know, dispensing available to them? That's a great question. I mean, I think there are a couple of different types of blocks. I think one of the blocks with restorative justice kind of in general has been that it has gained so much traction and momentum here in the last few decades and feels like it um, is becomes more distant in certain circles in certain ways from its origins as an indigenous practice. And so having more folks of color involved in restorative justice is, is, a big, is a big block that there aren't, often aren't as many as there should be. Um, and that then it in turn then replicates these same patterns of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I would say that another block can, that folks have talked about is that, if, that we're not really restoring something, right? That if there's tremendous harm that has happened, we're not going to ever get to a point where things are now as they were in the past, before the harm, before the fracture. And so that's sort of where transformative justice has come in that really looks to shift the conditions that led to the harm occurring in the first place. So I would say that for, um, that some of the blocks that happen are those and how do we get people to move through those is to continue to stay in, is to continue to dig deeper, to peel back, and how do we remain in relationship with one another as we're doing this work that so many of us have been conditioned to turn away from when there's discord, when there's harm. Again, looking at the prison industrial complex, like we just put bad, equate bad things with bad people and we just put them away and we don't have to turn toward them anymore. And so what is required so that we do continue to turn toward one another and that happens both on a larger scale in the work, but also interpersonally. And so like for Claire and I, when we are working together as a multiracial team, how do we also continue to turn toward each other and have these conversations that we've been conditioned to not have and just kind of disappear them? How do we continue to stay in? Yes, thank you. Can I tag on to that for a moment? That I... I also feel like a huge obstacle that's worth naming is that restorative justice is really rooted in the practice of taking accountability for harm and um, that so many things come up that keep us from being able to lean into accountability and primarily something that I feel in my own experience growing into this work and that I see all the time is just the role that shame plays to sort of disable us from being able to say, yeah, I did that. I did this thing and and I see that it has caused you tremendous harm. And the other thing that comes up for me with your question, Sam, is that I think a lot of white folks come to restorative justice and want restorative justice to be separate from racial justice. 
So they show up maybe with a desire to lean into these practices or to become stewards of this work, but not recognizing or yet willing to locate themselves and acknowledge their own whiteness and the impact of their own whiteness inside of that work as its own form of harm that's always functioning. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because this conversation and the work that you do becomes so intersectional, so multi-layered and ultimately so complex because in a certain way, it does become about power. Are there things in the, in the conversation today that feel like they're not being touched upon? For instance, gender justice or gender equality. Does that get enough attention when we're talking about issues of racial justice or restorative justice? And at the same time, I was perusing your, your website and I, I think I came across stuff about uh, queer or trans rights. Like, how do we have a conversation that is generalized enough to include all of the issues that that come to play within kind of the unfair power dynamic? I mean, I would say that the conversation has to both be general and specific. And um, I, as a Black cis woman, am not free of accountability and complicitness in this system of white supremacy. And I think that that's one of the important pieces is that we often want to just separate things into like these false binaries when really within there's so much along the continuum and within each piece, it's fractal again. And so as Claire was speaking to accountability, a lot of like my work, my reckoning work has been around what is my location? How am I enacting? What what things do I have to make right? And that I don't get, um, I don't get a pass on accountability mm. because of certain identities that I do and do not hold. Mm. So I think that there has to be, I think that there is both the broad conversation and I think there's also the specific conversation that we are all, we are all complicit in these different systems and we have all internalized these different systems and they play through us and live through us in different ways based on our social location and our identities. All of those systems that you named, Sam, are, they can't exist exclusive of one another, right? Like they're so intimately and inextricably connected. Patriarchy doesn't live in its own realm over here and white supremacy lives over here and capitalism lives over here. Like this is sort of why we have um, like <laughs> the fumbly words, multiple words of like capitalist, hetero, patriarchy, white supremacy, like to try to really evoke that all of those systems have co-arisen and they support one another. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate this, this conversation and this kind of attempt to untangle what can be a very... Um, like a, very, like a big ideological ball of yarn that, <laughs> that many people don't have any interest in sort of examining. It, it, I, I want to ask you, do you feel heartened by the progress that you've seen during the time that you have worked together? Can you speak about the kind of evolution of your, your feelings around your work? I mean, it just feels important. I just want to, when you're talking about this tangle, like I just see this big ball of yarn 
which is one of the reasons I think that this work can be so overwhelming is like there's where's the beginning, where's the end, who can see what any of these tangles are as opposed to when it's just stretched out as one thread. And that speaks to one of the reasons we work in the ways which we do, which is really like coming back to sitting in circle, coming back to self-inquiry and coming back to relationship because then it becomes much more tangible and much more real and much easier to understand. It's like, so how are we showing up in our relationship with one another in these specific ways? Like, how did that facilitation go? How did this conversation go? How did I show up here? What was the impact? Really drops it down into something real and less kind of blanketed and unclear. And in terms of being heartened by the work, um, yeah, sometimes <laughs> really heartened by the work and other days, you know, there's a feeling of why, why did I choose to do this work? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's overwhelming and frustrating and it's opening up so much trauma for people, for collectives, for organizations. But for the most part, I mean, I, I want to, I'm, I'm happy to be in it. And I don't know what else I would do that feels as meaningful and as generative as figuring out how do we get to be in right relationship with, with one another and how do we get to imagine and live into something that, um, that nourishes me. And I think that that's what it that's what it comes back to is sort of like the closer I get to what I imagine as being possible, the more impossible it is to go back to what was before. Yeah, I, I think I feel quite similarly. My ideas of what progress or success look like in this work have changed radically over time. And I think I I like came into this work as a as a 14 and 15 year old who had visions of like rolling back all of the systems like take taking the whole thing down and that is still a prayer and also what my work and um like what my sense of growth and progress feels like now is much less about like assessing how intractable or not racism is and white supremacy is, but is much more about feeling at a relational level are, are the ones that I'm in relationship to. And then the ones that those folks are in relationship to and out and out and out building some capacity to turn towards, as Karina kept saying, to turn towards what is true, to turn towards what is between us, to turn towards what has informed us and is at our backs, and to sit in a lot of discomfort and stay in and find that there are new possibilities for relating and seeing each other through that practice. And I, I Karina has um, referenced this, but I get to experience that at such a intimate level in our own partnership with each other, mm-hmm. where my hope and sense of the possibility of this work has grown exponentially just through our own relating. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I, I really want to. I want to take this moment to thank you guys both for the work that you're that you're doing in the world. I meant to start off the interview by um, by saying that, but it really is inspiring to see you follow what you you know, kind of a moral compass and your hearts, and actually be doing stuff in this world. Yeah, I'm I'm really feeling in this moment a deep appreciation for for the work that you're doing and, and the leadership and the way that it can influence other people. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Here's a request. Would you be open without sort of like necessarily naming names, identifying details, but would each of you be willing to share kind of a, a story of some of your work from the last year or so that is that filled you with optimism that gave you kind of the the energy to keep going on this path i i'll just say as a preface that i think that i struggle with words like optimism and hope so i might shift the language a little bit um but like certainly can use language like like keeps me in or keeps me enlivened or keeps me committed something that comes to mind and karina might want to jump in is that we, so we run these public training programs and before COVID hit, the way that we structured those were as three-day immersions. So we gather with a group, folks from all different walks of life, a multiracial group, we open a circle together and we have practices for doing that. And, And then we commence the training and like sort of the spoiler alert for the training is like, all those people just sitting in a circle with each other is the training and like what shows up between all of us it is the work much more than like whatever handouts we have or whatever didactic thing we present lots of times we have to let go of a lot of that throughout the course of the three days we call our agendas pretendas because they, they never go the way we expect them to and we love working emergently like that and in a recent training the last one that we had in person before covid on the first day there was a a white cis woman in the circle who spoke something in an introduction that was really harmful really erasing of the trauma of blackness and the trauma of folks of color that were sitting in the circle And it opened up a process that we were in for the next three days in which everyone stayed in despite a a tremendous amount of activation that would sort of come in ebbs and flows. Um, So we would, there would be sort of a moment of like peak activation and we would hold it together and invite everyone to hold it together and to practice And then like the circle would sort of find its way through and and regulate again. And then we might peak and then regulate again. I think what was so heartening to me about those three days and growthful for me and inspiring was how much we turned the work of finding our way through that conflict over to the entire collective. Karina and I, did not take, we, we are responsible for the circle and we also know that the circle knows what to do with itself. And I saw so many creative 
adaptations during the course of that circle, like moves I never would have thought of, things that people leaned in to offer in order to steward this rupture a little bit closer to repair or to show up with some generosity, both to the, the folks who had been harmed and also to the person who had done harm to really have her back so she could stay in the process. And I left just so floored by what's possible and how recognizing how limited my imagination is because of how I've been conditioned um, to believe in how we repair conflict. And it's so helpful to me to see that there are abundant possibilities for how we do that together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That was great. <laughs> um, so one of the ways in which we work is that when we're working with either in our trainings, our public trainings, or with organizations is that we do the work in as multiracial space, and then we always go into affinity group space as well. And then there are organizations with whom we work that are entirely BIPOC, and then I work with those folks, and then we work with some that are entirely white, and Claire works with those. So there are these different, different approaches. And I will say that we have, over the last three, I think it's three months now, we've also been offering a monthly practice evening so Claire is facilitating and holding space along with four other folks who have gone through our public trainings, a collective practice to end white supremacy. And then I am facilitating and holding space with four of our BIPOC facilitators um, called With Love For Us. And that's just an evening of collective care, community care for folks of color. For me, being able to hold space either in affinity space as a training with an organization or these collective evenings for black folks, indigenous folks and folks of color has been such, it has been such medicine um, to have a time to just be with one another where we're not centering whiteness, we're not gathering around white supremacy even though there are ways that that has played out but we're really gathering our own resilience, wellness, and community care and support. So it's just sort of a, like an opportunity to breathe mm -hmm. and to breathe with one another. And um, just beautiful things have manifested and arisen through those times together. And that has been a salve during this time. Yes. That's really wonderful. And it seems so obvious, I think, at this moment, to work within affinity groups and I'm, I'm wondering has that always kind of been the policy within stronghold or is it something that has come to light after years of working um, together and it's sort of being a problem yes and yes <laughs> <laughs> I will say um, and Claire I would love for you to to jump in that we did a training together before we launched Stronghold and it became really clear really early in that training, like within maybe the first 90 minutes yeah. that we would need to caucus. Um, 
because there was so much harm happening and it wasn't being, and it was being held by the whole group as opposed to um, white folks needing to do a certain type of work and folks of color needing to do a different type of work with different, that we have different tasks. And so I think that part of, part of that then as we started to work together with Stronghold when we were designing the training was really, really realizing, yeah, some of this work is not meant to be done together, that there is work that white folks must do that like as a person of color, as a black woman, I don't need to, I don't need to witness it. I don't need to be involved in it. And honestly, like, I just don't, I don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And then as folks of color, like, and how do we really get to support ourselves, nourish ourselves and be in community without, and being able to drop that labor, being able to speak freely. And again, being able to really prioritize what we want and need that is not gathered around whiteness. Yes. And so it became really clear, this is always how, how we will work, whether we're doing a public training, whether we're working with an organization, and sometimes it freaks people out, like all the more reason to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think that in a way, we're in a moment and have been in a moment of letting sort of like this, this most recent era of multiculturalism, diversity, equity, inclusion work die and stewarding in a much more pointed, much more coherent approach to um, not social justice, not diversity and inclusion, but racial justice and ending white supremacy. A more like, honest approach too. A much more honest approach. And I, it comes up for me around affinity groups because we work in affinity more and more and more and more, and we are um, less and less and less willing to compromise about that. And I feel like so much of kind of like that death grip that doesn't want us to go to that place comes out of so many of the ways that we, and I, when I say we, I mean mostly white people have been acculturated into sort of corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which in and of itself is a field that has been created and arisen out of whiteness and is largely designed to keep white people comfortable mm -hmm. in conversations about race and power and privilege and was really never designed to actually dignify or care for folks of color in the room who like Karina said, are, are experts in diversity, equity and inclusion, whatever that means, really like our experts in understanding what the trauma of racism and whiteness is mm -hmm. and don't need to be in the room when white folks are waking up for the first time or really struggling with the fact that we're even using the term white supremacy or privilege. Like those are conversations for us as white folks to hold with each other and bring each other along. Mm -hmm. And that labor and that pain, frankly, because there's so much gaslighting and erasure of folks of color just implicated in those conversations doesn't belong to people of color to hold. They've been doing that holding. Yeah, this is, this is good. It's really good to hear this. Do you, do you find, Claire, that white folks will generally hear the term white supremacy in a more open way if they hear it from a white person? 
they feel less defensive about their possible complicity? I think that really just depends on the stress responses of the white person with whom the conversation is happening. I think that we, we talk a lot about stress shapes in our work, which sort of is about like, what are the conditioned or habitual responses that we pop into under the pressure of racialized conflict? And racialized conflict could just mean for a white person having a direct conversation about white supremacy that feels confrontational to a lot of white people. And under pressure, some folks move into kind of the way you would think of fight, flight, or freeze as stress responses, like might move into a kind of perfectionism or appeasing we talk a lot about how white people really want to be seen as good. And so if the conversation is happening with a person of color who says white supremacy, there might still be a similar dysregulation inside of the white person who's receiving that, but there might be a desire to like be really good in that conversation or appear really open and available and, and we also know that that's not the case a lot of the time and that Black people's lived experience has been dismissed as a tradition of white supremacy for hundreds of years and that that shows up in conversation and interpersonal interaction all the time where folks of color and Black folks have learned better than to say white supremacy and expect to be taken seriously by the white person sitting across from them, which gives me a stomach ache to say out loud, like this thing that utterly shapes their life that cannot be held, mutually held between two people. My first answer to the question was, yes, I think white people, it's much easier for, for white folks to receive the phrase white supremacy from a white person. And I also completely agree with what Claire said, that there's this piece about being good um, or can be, you know, that that then shapes the response or the reaction. And I also think that um, when I look at how Claire and I facilitate together kind of the unspoken expectations that can arise from a group I think there are ways that people receive us differently based on our identities and locations. I think that there, and again, so these are all generalizations and as quickly as I think of them, I can think of an exception. But the first one is I feel like there is a, um, there's a receptivity to receiving information from Claire. And I think that we've had that experience where I can say something and people often don't, won't hear me. And then Claire says it and people hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are different ways that I am expected to hold like, the emotional labor when things either go sideways or if somebody feels harmed. But I think that then we, we hold awareness of this again, because we are doing our own work, both individually and together to uplift it, to acknowledge it. We, we don't default to those ways. So if we feel that that's happening, then we shift our approach as well to meet that moment. So I could just sort of all like shining a light, right? When these things are happening is how do we, 
how do we shine some light on what has happened and then transform it in the moment? So again, that people have a felt sense of what it feels like to be in, in the truth as opposed to moving from this kind of blind spot that's been conditioned for years and lifetimes without interrogating it and just kind of going down this path. segue a little bit and talk about the work that you do with incarcerated communities, if that sounds okay. As it almost seems impossible to talk about systemic racism without talking about the prison industrial complex. So, so talk to me about what you, what you do in prisons, please. So we both got our start doing, um, based on restorative justice, so doing restorative practices and processes in the prisons. And as Claire said, largely in San Quentin, although throughout the state of California. And it was a curriculum that was rooted in restorative justice, but wasn't sort of true restorative justice. It wasn't a victim offender dialogue because we had surrogate survivors come in at the end of the program. So this was usually an 18 to 24 month process with a group of anywhere from 12 to 15 participants. We had a facilitation teams of two volunteer outside facilitators, so like Claire and myself, and then two incarcerated facilitators who were on the inside and really, really held the program down. Um, And we worked closely and went through this curriculum, which was rooted in trauma healing, in some childhood development, Um, a lot of work around shame and looking at cycles of harm and cycles of trauma. And then at the end of the curriculum, we would bring in surrogate survivors. So survivors who had been through harm that reflected the harms that were committed by participants in the group and have two all day dialogues and sharing so that was that was that program, and um, and then also I also participated in what are called victim offender dialogues, and I just want to like have a little asterisk that that is the language of the of those processes and not mine. I'm not comfortable with either of those words, victim or offender, but they're called VODs, um, and they're facilitated where the survivor of harm reaches out to CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and says, I'm interested in having a dialogue with the person responsible for this offense. And then we check in with the person, the responsible party, and if they're open and available, then as a facilitator, we do a parallel process with each party, often for a very long time. Um, I would say anywhere from like eight to 16 months of separate meetings, of being a conduit of information between the two, and then eventually bringing them together for a dialogue, often each with a support person. So, so talk to me about some of the, the biggest challenges that are inherent in working with incarcerated communities. You spoke about shame. Yeah, just I would, I would love to hear more. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Um, 
it feels almost trite to say, but like trauma, period. And I want to be really clear that when I say that, like, it's not like, it's not singling out just the men or women who are incarcerated in the circle and sort of pathologizing those people as traumatized. It's really saying like, we've all been traumatized by the same systems. We, we, We experience that from different social locations. Punitive justice is traumatizing. White supremacy is traumatizing. The ways that we have learned and particularly I think the ways that communities of color have adapted and had to survive inside of systems of white supremacy and punitive justice also involve and reify its own kind of trauma, ways that we have all learned to soothe, numb, bear the weight of pain incurs yet more trauma. And then living inside of a prison and working inside of a prison. So I also just want to lift up like, because more and more restorative justice work is actually being done with law enforcement, with corrections officers, who themselves are often traumatized by the same systems and then experiencing more, more and more trauma from the ways that they are enforcing those systems and gatekeepers of those systems. So there's so much to just hold in that. There's so much in the water. It's why we move really slowly and take 18 to 24 months. I mean, we sit in circle every week for two years before before a conversation even happens between someone who's incarcerated and a surrogate survivor. And we could do it for longer. Yeah, the other thing that comes up for me is that this the system the prison is such a unstable system that there's one of the difficulties in doing this work is that at any given time this the prison goes into lockdown at any given time someone can't show up to group because they have been thrown into the hole at any given time you know there's it's such a re-harming place. It absolutely disrupts our ability to hold a grounded container or even to hold a sense of continuity around the work. And I think that's something that we learn to adapt to and is really challenging. I have another piece that I want to piggyback on, which I started to speak to and spoke to a bit um, about not not speaking about trauma as just being something that impacts folks who are behind the wall. And earlier, Sam, you asked about privilege and power, and I think that this is also this is also a hard piece about doing this work inside. Is particularly at San Quentin, which is located in one of the most affluent white communities. Um, And so there are a tremendous amount of volunteers going into San Quentin, which is incredible, um, or who were before COVID hit. Um, And really having to have those conversations with folks about why are you choosing to go into a prison to do this work? And realizing that it's more than, 
there are reasons for that. There's something that is drawing someone to go into a prison to volunteer their time. And I think often folks don't really want to look at that, but there's something that's sort of like sexy about going into a prison and sitting in circle and don't ask me like what's motivating me from my own trauma story that I want to do that. There's, um, there are many, many, many more women going in to do volunteer work in the prison. So I think like there are all of these pieces that are more shadow and it's very difficult to try and clear that veil and have people again, like sit in the actual truth of this is really why I'm here. This is what I'm hoping to repair for myself and my own lineage and my own story. This is like, I get to come in, I get to leave. I have a, you know, a place of privilege and power when I'm sitting in the prison with a group of incarcerated folks. I think that that has also been incredibly challenging work. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. What are some of the volunteer um, options that, that people choose to do? Is there like yoga or literacy or what kind of stuff? Yes and yes. There's, you know, like San Quentin is, is unique in this way that there are, I think the last I knew there were over 3,000 volunteers going in a year. There's prison university projects. So folks are actually are teaching, teaching math, teaching English. There's yoga, there's the Enneagram, there are many restorative process programs. Um, there are religious services, there are, um, there's San Quentin cooks, there are... San Quentin news. Yeah, there's journalism piece, Shakespeare, there's theater. I mean, there, it's like everything that you can imagine volunteering for. There's some program, I think there are like 82 different programs offered in San Quentin and so volunteers for all of them and it's easy to think like oh I love photography and so I'm just going to go volunteer my photography skills when really there's there are layers underneath that for all of us who choose to go in and sit with the folks inside and it feels really important to lift up and name that this work inside is deeply reciprocal There is never a time when it felt like for me, speaking for myself, that I was going in and just offering something. I was always receiving um, tremendous teachings. I was receiving opportunities to have my own trauma be repaired and not not always in spoken ways, but again, through the relationships. Yeah, I mean, I consider, I think both of us consider that our teachers are behind the wall. Yes. Our teachers in this work. Coming back to this question I had earlier about some of the challenges inherent in working with the incarcerated communities, is there a great amount of, on the, on the prisoners' part, rage at the blatant racism in the judicial system? Is that something that you come across? I think that relationship to blatant rage is really precarious when you are in a black or brown body and targeted by and already caught up in the punitive justice system. Mm -hmm. Blatant rage in some ways is something, especially blatant rage where it's actually appropriate, (laughs) like where it's actually deserved, which, you know, Blatant rage at racism and the racism of our criminal justice system is is deserved, is appropriate. 
And I think blatant rage in those directions is particularly precarious, which is also part of why we see blatant rage come out in other directions, other ways where it's more socially, where it's more socially permissible for it to be expressed. Mm. There are serious consequences to expressing blatant rage toward the powers that are, that have your body imprisoned. Mm-hmm. I'll just say something else about that for a second, that the, f- the first time I started sitting in circle, I think it took a year before racism and whiteness was like really became a part of the conversation that we were having in circle. There were, there were a number of times where I would sort of presence it or name my own whiteness or acknowledge my own white womanness sitting in the circle, a white woman with the power to hold and facilitate the circle. And, and kind of every time I dropped it, nobody picked that up. Like nobody wanted, nobody wanted to move toward that for good reason, like as a protective strategy. And it took, it took probably a year of sitting in circle with each other, sharing about intimate traumas and childhood experiences and violence for whiteness and racism to actually become a sustained conversation in the circle. That feels important, feels significant. Yeah, thank you for for speaking to that. It's dangerous. I mean, that's the word that is for me. Like, it's just plain. It's dangerous. It's unsafe for folks who are inside to express rage. And there's extreme punishment that comes as a result of that, yeah. particularly towards the, towards the system of the Department of Corrections. And so it is structured and set up and reinforced to play it out amongst each other. There's tremendous um, race division that exists with still within prisons for the quote-unquote safety of folks who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. But it's dangerous. It is dangerous. imagine I can't imagine actually doing what what you two do I know that being on the front lines of this is is so demanding and I wanted to ask if it's um, if it's appropriate for this conversation about the ways that you self-care how do you make this work how can you do this as a marathon as it is as a a life work as opposed to burning out in in, two to three years it's really such a great question and one of the harder ones Like everything that we do, it's a practice, literally. We were just having conversations about what does it mean to take time off under these conditions of COVID when the boundary is so fuzzy between home and work and being present and being away. Yeah, I took some time off. It was, it was intended to be a vacation <laughs> and just evolved into working from another location. And so then like, I will practice again next time. And we've had a lot of conversations about 
what are we what are we needing what are we expecting from ourselves and one another and how do we again like how do we nourish ourselves so that we can stay in because it is it is a long haul i think that there are small ways of self care like throughout the day that now when i pause for lunch that i actually close my computer and i do things like that where um which feels like a small win I block out, I try to block out a little bit of time for things like that or for going, um, taking a walk. And then I will say the other piece of self-care is really like embedded in our relationship for me. You know, I don't think that there's anybody else I could do this work with other than Claire. And I really trust our capacity to hold one another and to be able to speak into what is and is not working. And that feels like such deep us care, which is also self-care, which then also becomes community care that we're able much more competent and able to hold a process for our community if we are both resourced and well. And not getting into those conversations that often arise in organizations that we were just speaking of where, oh, you have all of this vacation time to use, but don't really take a vacation. <laughs> but there's, you know, <laughs> and so how do we really meet, meet, name and recognize our needs and those for the other and then encourage, like, take time off. I do not expect you to respond. Really step away. Um, so I think that there, for me, there's the two types of self-care that's really like, what am I doing for myself? And then what am I participating in in my relationships that support my health and wellness so that I can also be in support of the health and wellness of my community? I think something that comes up for me in this conversation, I'm thinking of a of a quote from Resma Menakam, who wrote the book, My Grandmother's Hands, and who's an amazing teacher to both of us in this work. And he talks about, when speaking about white supremacy, he talks about how the reason that white supremacy is so intractable is because it provides white people with something to belong to. And belonging feels so so crucial for us to be looking at and for for me to be examining inside of myself all the time and I would expand that for the purposes of the conversation we're having in this moment to like uh, white supremacist capitalism has given me something to belong to I only have reference points in the culture and in my body or almost only have reference points for the, a culture of white supremacy, especially an organizational culture of white supremacy that prioritizes urgency, that prioritizes perfectionism, that prioritizes being an authority and hoarding and accumulating power and not asking for help because that would be a sign of weakness and you actually need to keep people below you. And I feel really in a very active process of learning how to belong to something else that I do not yet have an embodied experience of, but that like step by step 
moment by moment, Karina and I are creating new ways of, of belonging is how I feel where my, my worth to stronghold and my worth to Karina and my worth to the people that we work in partnership with isn't predicated on how late I can stay up sending emails every night and how quickly I can respond and yeah, how many contracts I can make, you know, all of those things that just at the end of the day are like, who cares? Like that's, it's so antithetical to the actual work that we're doing. It, it puts us in a contortion, like where we choose to contort ourselves when we continue to buy in over here. But when we say that this is the work of restorative justice and dismantling that we're doing over here, and I feel like we're in a constant process, practice of bringing our ways of being into alignment with the work that we do and what we really deeply believe in. And it's hard and risky and slow work because that feeling of like, I'm going to be disbelonged is always right there. Like if I don't actually respond on my vacation, I'm going to be disbelonged. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, in some ways it's funny. And in other ways, it's like our belonging is everything. It's everything we need it. And so um, it feels like really brave work and it feels like we're doing it with each other. And it feels like a big part of what we're doing is asking for help, asking for other people to hold us because we hold so many and, you know, having advisors and mentors and elders in our life who do that for us and more and more and more having the circle of stronghold widen so that we're not juggling over here trying to hold it all, but really trusting that we can hand it over and we don't have to be in control all the time. Beautiful. Yeah, I really appreciate both of your answers on that. It's really, really deep. So kind of bringing this conversation more to a close, I have two questions left. One of them is, what's one specific ask that you might have for this listenership or for me, one piece of action that we might take to kind of shake us out of our torpor and become part of the solution? I'm going to go first. I, I suspect that your listenership is primarily white folks and maybe middle-aged white folks with some level of wealth privilege and, and Sam, you're a white man. And my, my ask is to find um, in the same spirit of finding something better to belong to than white supremacy is to actually take up that pursuit, whether that means that you find, you plug in with your local surge showing up for racial justice community, or you find some circle of work, some training, some trusted guides who are really carrying the, the work of white folks doing the internal dismantling because we cannot do the external dismantling without doing the internal dismantling. And many of us as white folks can't just um, jump into action or jump to the front lines 
if we haven't done that deep inquiry work for ourselves about how whiteness and white supremacy has come to live in us and operate through us, or else we'll just bring those unconscious behaviors to the front lines and into organizing spaces and keep incurring the same kind of harm. So my ask is do the work around whiteness with other white folks who have experience and time in doing that work and also have relationship and partnership with people of color. I struggle a little bit with this question. Um, I think that my, I mean, my ask, and it's, I don't, it's not even really an ask, but feels specific to Black folks and folks of color, which is something around radical love. Mm. And I'm prioritizing Black folks and folks of color. That's one piece. And I also, when I, when I speak this out loud, I have a concern that when white folks hear it, it's like, oh, I just have to love people. Yeah. And that's not what I'm saying. So I want to be really explicit. But within like our communities as black people and as people of color, there is also so much wounding, trauma, I think like a distance from what, what we know, from what we know we know, from our, our deep body wisdom. And I have such a longing and desire for us to meet in that place mm. and to really hold like mm. all black lives, um, to really hold all lives of people of color, to not reduce us to like one identity, to really lift up all of our multitudes that exist within all of all of those circles. Yeah, like that is my deep longing. I don't know that it's something I can ask for, but it is something that I yearn for um, in black communities and communities of color. Thank you. If each of you were to recommend one book or one essay for this work and for this moment, what would it be? I mean, there are so many things. I will say what I have been, can I recommend a podcast? Yeah. Mm. Um, one that st has recently started and that I'm just like hanging on is um, Prentice Hempel. It's finding our way with Prentice Hempel. I don't even really have the words to, to speak about it, just to say, to listen to it. Awesome. It like deep and beautiful incredibly humble wisdom um it's just like here's a gift that's how it feels yes yeah i agree that there are so many and um what comes to mind is resma menicum's book my grandmother's hands and part of the part of the treasure of that book for me is how deeply embodied his approaches and that he knows and thus teaches from the knowing that we can't dismantle this through thinking alone, that this is all written on the body, programmed into the body. Our nervous systems are utterly 
implicated in and intertwined with racism and white supremacy. And we decondition and heal through the body. So I love, I love that and I'm really grateful for his contribution in that way. Karina Montag and Claire Whitmer, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. It's been a, a real pleasure and an honor to learn from you. Thank you so much, Sam. <laughs> really great to be with you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>